Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, everybody. So today's episode is definitely a heartfelt labor of love. 
and comes from a very deep personal place. For me, this is a very joyful circle episode because we have three generations of SLPs on today. So um, first and foremost, I am with my partner in crime, the one and only Erin Forward, who if this hadn't been her idea when she was my student, hell, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> and I have had the immense joy and pride of watching her find her muchness as a clinician and find her niche in our world and pay it forward already by being a clinical supervisor. And she was a clinical supervisor to our third generation, Miss Riley Jo Clocal, mother of the cutest, furriest critter on the planet. Sorry, Cola Kitty, but Dixie Mae is adorable. But Riley was my graduate student out at Francis Marion University. And you'll have the person that you click with in grad school, and sometimes it's a professor, and that's what happened. And Erin became her clinical supervisor and adopted Riley the way I kind of adopted the Aaron. And bloody hell, we're all here and I'm super proud and all emotional. And then life events happened and we got to see Riley rise like a phoenix from a very dark place. And that's what today's episode is about. It's about paying it forward and talking and working through sibling love languages as a phoenix. So everybody's like, why is Michelle crying so damn much? But like, here we are. So Aaron, hi. Also, a frog jumped in my car and got in my steering wheel yesterday on the way to taking the kids to school. So like I had a panic attack and there was colorful language squealed in the subdivision, but like we all survived. So take it from there. How you doing lady? Well, I mean, I don't have a car again, so we're, just- <laughs> we're back. We're back. The new car was short-lived. Uh, so uh, what do you think? What do you think the car situation? Oh, home health. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For those of you that didn't know, she got slightly T-boned and may or may not have totaled the new car. <laughs> After the old one just kind of went kerplunk, but she's okay, ladies and gentlemen. She okay. is okay. Yes, physically so. we're okay. Mentally, <laughs> unsure. Sorry, we're gonna be there. We're gonna be okay though. So you have some good taxi cabs. Yep, lots of Ubers. <sighs> okay, so Riley, introduce yourself officially to the folks because they kind of know you a little bit from the First Bite podcast. Tell us what made you want to be an SLP, and you got to say Minnesota the fancy way because I like how you say it. <laughs> I'm Riley. I was one of Michelle's students at FMU. I actually vividly remember I emailed her individually because I was like, "This is my person." She was sharing her amazing journey as being a survivor. And I just instantly clicked with her and I was like, I just need to. So that is history. But what got me into SLP was my older brother, Ty. He was diagnosed with CP, a lot of other conditions as like autism, dysphagia, all the other pretty full names that he got along with it. But he used an AAC device, so I grew up with one. And... I just always knew I wanted to give back. I didn't know if it was going to be SLP. I looked into OT, but when I shadowed both, I just fell in love with SLP. Ironically, it was a feeding session that I did. 
that I fell in love with. Thinking back on it now, they probably weren't doing it the way that I would do it now, but <laughs> I just have always wanted to give back because I got to see all the caretakers with my brother and I just knew it was my niche. Where did you go to school back home? I got my undergrad at Moorhead State University of Minnesota and then had a semester off and then went to FMU in Florence, South Carolina. Nice, nice, nice. Moorhead, that's what it was. I couldn't remember it. It's a dinky little D2. It's like FMU. It was like a smaller a smaller school. The boys were watching Pinterest of fluffy animals and there was a moose drinking out of somebody's sprinkler and I was like that up north. That's what I told I was like I was like it's probably from Miss Riley's hometown. (laughs) I remember one time I was mean to Jackson. My little brother, his name is Jackson. We were driving up north and I told him that a bear was gonna come to the car and he cried the last hour to our destination because he was terrified a bear was gonna come. (laughs) We did see a bear that weekend. But he didn't come get Jackson. See, the joy of living in the city, we don't have to worry about wild animals like that. I don't know. There's frogs in your car, apparently. What the hell, man? I thought the kids were teasing me. And they were like, Mom, a frog jumped in the car because last week a spider fell from the sun visor, landed on my sunglasses that were on my face, and I almost chipped a tooth screaming so hard. So Yeah, I think I would have gotten wrecked both times. Yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 that. So, okay. So I'm itching just thinking about it. All right, here we are. So Riley had... She came into graduate school pre-inclined with baseline knowledge of AAC. And then she went and had Aaron for a semester in the upstate. And Aaron is like a C-feeding intersection like guru. And it kind of went from there. So the fun thing, Zencaster, how we audio record had an update. So now we can all see each other and y'all can't see us, which is great because we're a hot mess this morning, but we're all giggling because Aaron's blushing. But she got to see it from a clinician perspective. Riley, you want to start us off with what your pre-exposure was like as a sibling first? What I remember was mainly my brother bringing home the device from school. He would talk about his favorite thing was food, even though he had oral dysphagia. That's all he wanted to do. We called him the human trash can. We would just grind everything up and he would get it. But he would talk about each day what was for lunch because that's what they programmed every week. So we, I would know every day. I would tell all my friends I'd know what's for lunch. I've been told a million and ten times what is for lunch. It was mainly that what I can remember is he would explain what he did at school. We didn't use it a whole lot at home. I actually talked to my parents about this a few weeks ago in regards to my presentation because I'm doing an interview with them. But and Aaron and I talked about this last night. Even though he has a device valuing his other modes of communication with his common communicators. Because sometimes when you come home, you're just exhausted. When you're with your spouse, when you're with your kids, like they know your language. And having a kid that uses it, you know their language and what they want and what they need. And that's exhausting. We had this conversation of how it has been a barrier in learning how to communicate that with parents, of that that can be okay. So my memory with it is not extensive with Ty, but I remember when he moved into his house that that was something I was always on top of because they just left it in a drawer because they didn't give the access to even use it. 
Wait, can you explain what you mean when he moved into a house? My brother lived in an adult group home. When he was 17, he moved out because unfortunately how that works is when someone passes away, there's an open room and that's just when the time came. He was almost graduating high school. So he moved out before high school was done, which was hard. (laughs) And he lived there. He loved it. He ruled the roost at his house. He was spit and fire there. (laughs) Um, Everyone loved him there, but they sadly didn't accommodate his needs at all the time. So that was always a concern of mine. And I brought it up to my dad. He goes, Riley, that is a small concern. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is his communication, dad. But there was a lot of other underlying things going on there. So with that, it was minimal to what my dad was concerned with. Mm-hmm. But I think because like Riley said, we were talking about this last night and you bring up a good point. Like we are huge advocates for AAC and speech generating devices and having whatever mode of communication is going to be robust and authentic to them. But I think we get caught up in that sometimes about like making sure that it's used all the time. But it makes me think about like, you know, when we go to Michelle's house and Bear puts his head on Michelle's lap, that's his communication of I've had a long day. I need some physical touch. We're not expecting him to come up to Michelle and say, hey, mom, can you please give me a hug? Because I've had a really hard day and this is what happened. So, but with our kids with AAC user, sometimes we do act like that and we want that. And people say like, tell me on your talker or, you know, what do you want? Use your words, which we're not huge proponents of here, but like they say it in other ways. And so I have so many kids that I've switched my mentality of their AAC to those moments where someone doesn't understand them or when they're at school or when they're outside of the house is really, really when that can be valuable because sometimes a parent just wants to connect and sometimes that child just needs to connect. And that doesn't always mean using their AAC. And I mean, another example between you and I, Erin, this past weekend when I texted you, like, this is what happened. I'm not ready to talk about it, but I was able to use a different mode of communication to verbalize to you even though I wasn't ready to explain it to you, but we use different modes all the time when we're like, if we're anxious, we might not want to talk to someone on the phone. So we're going to text them. I don't get why that would be any different than someone that just because they have a, a speech generating device that they can't feel those ways. When I write my goals and this is just how I do it and everybody's goals are going to be tailored, predicated upon the courses that you have continuing education courses that you have participated in, the clinical practicums that you've had exposures to, as well as your baseline coursework that you've obtained, right? On like graduate coursework. But I always write a total communication goal. Patient will, given visual verbal cues of desired object action in line of sight and or however out of reach, patient will use total communication of X amount of words for three consecutive speech therapy sessions. And when I say total communication, I put in parentheses ASL, spoken language, or AAC, or and gestures. And that's that's key because if my goal or is multimodal to, communication. Yes. Sometimes those yes, because I like, think to, total communication is technically deaf and hard of hearing. Oh yes. Yes, yes, yes. 
I should probably update that. <laughs> but that's just it. Mm-hmm. Goals change. Oh my gosh. We ha- I had Becca over yesterday. She was helping me. She surprised me. She was in town. Dr. Wada. Dr. Wada, we love you. And FMU, she would always do round tables and she would always pick on me afterwards. And she's like, Michelle, you write the longest goals in the history of goals. And I'm like, I do, because that's how I was taught to write like super anal retentive smart goals and blah, 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 blah. But she was like, yeah, she's like, they're really wordy. I'm like, well, I is guilty. <laughs> but yes. Okay. So and this conversation is talking to caregivers about how to engage in AAC comes at it with multiple barriers. And some of it is exposures and comfortability to tech. There are some caregivers that may be younger, may have grown up with tech, that if I give them a device, they're going to run with it and take ownership over their child's device and just fly because they're comfortable. But there are some that are intimidated and afraid of the price tag. They don't want to break it. There are those that are just not comfortable with tech. So what other barriers aside from the obvious of it's hidden in a drawer and they don't know how, and if it's growing dust, it may not be being used. So what are some of the common barriers that y'all encounter that we see? I mean, I think, and Riley, you were saying this yesterday, we haven't all moved past that, but I think we've started to move past the, it's going to stop them from talking, but they still have this feeling of, okay, This means that we might be not giving up, but like we have to then process through the fact that they might not be talking as much as I thought they would be, or it might take them a lot longer to talk because we're officially moving to another mode of communication. So like that is a difficult, mm -hmm. and Riley said this yesterday, like they're going through a grief cycle with all of that because now... I have to accept the fact that we're really not pushing speaking as much as we were before. And that's hard. How'd that play out with y'all, Riley? Do you remember? How old were you? I mean, Ty was five years older than me, I think. Five or six, something like that. I don't really still remember. But like, even when I brought it up to my mom, actually a few days ago, because I'm getting ready to start for my presentation, trying not to procrastinate, but folks, she's talking at closing the gap <laughs> in Minneapolis next month. So go visit her. And who are you presenting with? Kristen Whitfield, Whitefield. Yes. Yeah, so go check her and Kristen out at closing the gap next month. Okay. But yes. But like she was just saying of like how long ago that feels. And I remember digging into my brother's IEP goals a few months ago when I was home for Christmas. And like seeing those, it was because he had his device then too. And it like it's just so different of what they utilized it for. I mean, it's probably more so what big variety of people in our field still use it for, as being different style of clinicians use it for. They don't use it in the like the full context as it can be used for like all of his goals were just like requesting or more, like very strict and nothing like where it was just tie talking if you know what I mean like it wasn't individualized at all well I think that's even yeah that's even I struggle sometimes because I think there's this misconception that AAC is just for requesting 
And I hear that a lot from OTs that I've come in contact with. Like, oh, well, you just have to give them what they ask for then. And I think it's hard for people to wrap their brain around. Like, it's another form of communication. It's another language, but it's a language. And language is all-encompassing. And language has different modes. And language builds. And language is back and forth. And so if it's a language system. It can be a language system if you're not talking to them with it. And if it's not being used for different modes, then it's just a request button. And that's fine if that's what the child's using it for at the time and that's what they want to use it for. But it's so much more. But at the end of the day, it's our job to model it. It's our job to use it in that way. And then it's the child's job to decide what feels the most authentic to them. But I think that's growing too. I think that's why like there's more research coming out and building off of our gestalt language processors in AAC because AAC initially was not built for gestalt language processors. It was built for analytic processors. So adding scripts on there, changing the tone of voice. I would love to see. I'm so intrigued. Yeah. I'm so intrigued about what research can come out with. How can we better use AAC with our gestalt language processors in regards to the tone of voice and the melodic intonation because AAC is not melodic but that's a huge part of how they're processing this language. So it's growing a lot. Yeah. I'm worried about the lag time because I feel like some of the devices are just now getting to the point where the iconography is not little white male children. So we're finally seeing diversity in our iconography and diversity in some of the voice options, but it's taken how long to even get to that point. So that's where... I worry for like the research to practice piece. It's surprising to me almost that it hasn't already been implemented because of the development of language and how kids acquire language of like the motherese and the change of intonation. I think though the benefit we have is there are bigger companies that are building this technology. Like I think it was Teresa Richard that had someone on her podcast that got hired at Google to help with the voice recognition for adults that have aphasia or have stutter, have different speech. So like if these AAC companies could, granted, I know there's patents and all the things on everything and technology because money talks, but the technology's out there. It's just figuring out how to use it. Well, if Alexa is improving, I just got to say, I have a little one that's disfluent and his Arctic patterns, but Alexa gets him and can decipher him when, and it's amazing to me that we can do that. So that's cool. I don't know Alexa. So I Christian's convinced that Russia's listening. So we therefore don't have an Alexa. I'm like, but I talk to Siri all the time on my phone. He's like, you should not be talking to Siri. I'm like, well, she's already listening. (laughs) So like, there's that. Okay. So When we look at the barriers, when we look at language barriers, when we look at, I feel like there's different barriers. There's the financial, there's the caregiver understanding of tech, there's the access points, then there's the intrinsic motivational barriers. Does the child feel that this is valued and respected and an extension of themselves, right? All of those are barriers that I feel like as the caregiver coaches, like it's our job to help 
navigate and coach through those barriers and troubleshoot, take us there. Like, how would your advice as a sibling have been a couple years ago versus now as a clinician? Does that make sense? Like, what coaching differences would you give? So, just coaching recommendations in general. I've had this conversation a lot with coworkers recently, but, and I'll let Riley talk the differences. I think that it's really, really important because if the AAC system is going to work and a child's really going to use it, you need it to work for both the family and the child. So you can have an AAC device that's perfect for the child, but if the family can't edit it, if they don't understand it, if it doesn't speak to them, then like it's not going to get used. It's going to be in their backpack. It's going to be in a drawer. And that's not helpful for anybody. So I have this conversation all the time. Just as much time as you spend getting to know the child and figure out what device works for them, get to know the parent, ask them questions. Don't be afraid to like really dive in and figure out why they might not want an AAC device, where their biggest fears come from with it. Granted, you have to build their trust first. You can't just go in full force asking them all these questions. Michelle and I talk, like we've been talking, like everyone has their own love language. I have parents who really benefit from praise and words of affirmation. And in in the session, giving them direct feedback on, I love how you did that. Did you see the connection that you and him or her had? Did you see how he came right up to you and looked at you as soon as this thing happened because he's so connected to you. I have parents who need facts and want information and want to know why I'm doing what I'm doing and want handouts and want research. I have caregivers that need a break sometimes and like they don't come into every session. I have caregivers that can feel connected when their child grabs their hand. So like you have to understand where they're coming from, but also and I think I have a harder time with kids that come to me later and who have had a lot of speech therapy because you don't know what the conversations were before. You don't know if a speech therapist brought up a device. You don't know if someone told them. Yeah, you don't know what approach they had. You don't know if there was trauma involved. You don't know if someone said to them in the past, like, they need these prerequisites for a device or they shouldn't be getting a device. So, like, t- The longer a child has had therapy, the more work you have to do to figure out what's happened in the past. And that's going to take more time. And so, and even a kid that comes from the NICU, like we're we're not talking about AAC then, but I'll introduce AAC at like a year old. But again, like there's so much history. And so respect that, respect the history, respect that they've gone through a lot and don't expect that like you're going to just become their best friend right away. I love a family where like I have to work for it. But Riley, I don't know if you heard Michelle's whole question because she was talking about what differences or recommendations you would give for coaching with AAC and pull from your experience with Ty. And I mean, you've had a lot of experience in grad school and since starting your CF. I mean, it sounds cliche, but like really just involving the siblings and also educating the siblings. Like our little ones that we used to see together, like one of their siblings, like she loves 
to talk on it too with him. And I even do that with my patients. Like I saw one yesterday and he comes from ABA. He's exhausted. We just chill and hang out sometimes. But I talked to him on there just as he would talk to me. Because I mean, I'm using his mode of communication. That and then this is something that Michelle taught me that I'm very passionate about with the families, especially new into the device and trying to make it easier for them and their family is doing a routines-based interview and incorporating the siblings part in their routines. Because I know as a sibling with a brother that had disabilities, I was involved a lot, changing him, meds, clothing. Like we were all a team at home, especially when we were in school. (laughs) Getting him on the bus was always top priority in the morning. (laughs) So just understanding that It's not just the parents in their routine, too. It's also the kids, and they play a big role in it, even if they're younger. I mean, they want to talk to times the most excited, too. Right. Yeah. And parents, I think, get nervous. Like, I have so many parents are like, no, 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 that's their words. Don't use it. And you're like, no, actually, this is great. This is great that they want to use this. This is great that they get involved. I wish that when one child gets a device, like, their family could also get a device so that they could both talk with it at the same time. Cause I do have some kids that get then like protective over their talker, or their words, which is totally fine. But then you're like, okay, wait, like how do I model this without with respecting them? Like I think, I think insurance should cover too. Whenever a mom is like, well, I don't want them touching that because you know, the little siblings are tend to be stickier. We can wipe it off. And the more they see stakeholder buy-in and I mean, I'm going to code switch out of stakeholder buy-in, but like, that's what you're establishing with siblings, like stakeholder buy-in. And I don't know, it warms my heart when I'm driving somewhere and the boys are in the back seat checking out somebody's device like that's like in route because that's something that as a society we need to do a better job of empowering individuals that are typically developing to be comfortable with differences and I mean I think Laura knows we try with goose and bear sometimes I'm like oh we missed the mark on that one, but I love that they investigate it and, and seek to understand, okay, well, how come this screen is black or how come there's more words on this setting or on this page? Cause you know, like I'll program my trial device, like the one that travels with me while we're waiting on the child's like permanent long-term loan so that there's like different pages for different patients. And so it's kind of cool to see the, you know, the boys get in on that. I love when grandparents get involved. Like there's one little guy that liked to go fishing and the grandfather wanted to take him fishing. And he's like, you need to put like the grandma came in Mimi. Her name was Mimi. And Mimi came in. She goes, now Papa says we need to put a catfish on here. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So we like found a picture of a catfish, loaded it up on like the animal page. And, but it was, she goes, we don't know how to add it, but we know you know how to do that. So you go ahead and put that catfish on there saying, take this thing fishing. I won't let him drop it in the water. And I was like, but that to me was like the greatest thing ever because now that little one's idol, his hero is going to use it. And I mean, it may not have a lot of core vocabulary modeled on it, but if their fringe word is catfish and they're going to catch a cat, I would not stick my hand in a catfish's mouth, but like you do you, but that was amazing to me to be able to like 
support them in that. Okay, just in your lifetime, how cool is it to see, like, because I remember you telling me about the original Toby that t- <laughs> your eyebrows on that. I still have both of his devices. Really? Back home. My dad was like, do you think you could use them on any of your kids? I'm like, dad, they're a little heavy. They're a little big. <laughs> they're like this thick, like probably a solid three inches. Oof. Yes, that's where we go. But that's another barrier is the size. So I have one little girl that she didn't like the strap that came with her device. And she likes to play in her mom's purses. So her mom took her purse strap. And so now she has different straps for different days to match her outfits because this is what she needed in her life, fashion. And I appreciate that. I mean, I don't understand it. I look to the Aaron for all things fashion sense, but I do... I do like that. <laughs> I mean, a girl knows what she wants. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't yeah, but matter. figuring yes. out what, okay. you know, their love language, fashion. I didn't even think of it like that. But yeah. Make it look cute. cute. Some parents get so excited when they get to pick out the background of the device. Like, oh, yes. Because I have one patient that has rat syndrome and the rat syndrome color is purple. So like it brings mom joy that. Her wheelchair is purple, that her device is purple, that her, you know, everything is purple because it like represents her. Tomato chair is purple. Tomato chair is purple, like all the things. Okay. All right. So talk to me about what, hi, Cola. I'd like to point out that all three of us have our fluffy critters nearby. Dixie Mae is overseeing from the couch. Cola is on the lap. Bear, good Lord, he better be at school. Dog's asleep on the pillows. But okay, so talk to me about when you interviewed your parents, what life lessons or advice have they given? I haven't fully done the interview yet. I brought it up briefly, but my dad talked a little bit about it. I would say like the biggest life lesson with that would be, and this is something I've talked to both y'all about, is the insurance thing of just keep pushing with it and like finding new resources and working as a team. Because I was, I've asked my dad this and it was like, before my brother actually passed because I went to undergrad for this too. So I knew insurance, like it can be a pain to get your device covered or in general therapies. And my father's an insurance agent. And so he saw both sides of with having a kid and then being on the other side of it. And I was like, dad, like, how did you know to do? He goes, I knew the loopholes, but I, I knew how to get around it. But like this information is not projected to other families, which is hard because they're, we should be wanting to provide them with the best services and equipment, even if it takes the extra few months to get it because you have to appeal the process with the insurance. I mean, it's the same thing with Aaron's wreck in a way of my dad was like, no, 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 no. You, there are three steps you need to take. I'm sorry, Erin. One day this will – I know it's not funny for you right now in the moment, but I promise in 10 years you're going to look back and be like, I survived and it will be funny then. But as she gives us the murder stare, folks. Mm-hmm. All right. Continue, Riley. <laughs> I don't know of any other lessons with it, to be honest. I haven't like really dived deep into the interview with it. That's my goal this weekend if I get to it. Yeah. Your mom is going to be like, and we're done, Riley. Oh, Taylor. I know. She, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Okay, so when I get the pushback on the barriers for the finances, this is why you need to know what 
You need to find a company that will assist with the process from the beginning to the end and what resources are available in your state. Here in South Carolina, we have something called Amplify Life. And with Amplify Life, they if you have a diagnosis, a set pre-approved diagnosis, and I think the age is three and older, then they will fund one device and one communication app for a set period of time. Like I don't think you can get another one within three years. But there historically is no tech support. There's no insurance on it. It's like you get the one and you're done. And you have to bank on the fact that the clinician is there to assist with programming or that the caregivers and patient can do the programming themselves and any tweaking and modifications. But it's there and it's free and it happens rapid fire, right? So it's a quick way to get a device. Aaron Riley and I all engage heavily with Control Bionics and Talk to Me Technologies. And they have support teams that navigate and do all of the insurance paperwork behind the scenes so that as therapists, we can just go in and focus on the therapy. So with that being said, did you know, regardless of your setting, you can get a long-term loan? I mean, it is a contract, but you can get a long-term loan for a device or devices. Personally, I've got a long-term loan for a Wego 10A with Talk to Me Technologies and a Zuvo 12 so I can do eye gaze and head tracking and with key cards. So that's with me for basically an indefinite period of time so that when I go out and I do my eval and I see that the child's going to need AAC supports right out the gate, I have it there in that moment, right? But Your patients can also be set for a long-term loan so that you can do that data collection and they can work with it in their natural environment and their daily routines. You mentioned the routines-based interview. Y'all, that's the thing that we keep going back to. You can find it through the Family Guided Routines-Based Interview, fgrbi.com or .org. Give credit where it's due. Dr. Burns, Dr. Francis Byrne over at FMU, she's the woman that taught me about the routines-based interview because I was doing that, but not doing it in like a formal manner. And they have like a formal manner. So with that routines-based interview, I go in and I ask the questions and that helps us select the targeted vocabulary to meet that patient and that ca- those caregivers' needs. When a parent counters with like, I'm worried about the finances. Erin, how do you navigate those conversations? Like what works with you when they start worrying about insurance and stuff like that? To be honest, most of the kids that I see are Medicaid. I know for sure they're not going to have to worry about it. So it's a pretty easy conversation. And I think that's one of the things I try to put to bed really quickly, either with that or talking to them about all the resources that they have available and making sure that they know that I am very well equipped to navigate those resources and that I'm on their team because I think I don't know how every other therapist does therapy. I don't know how every other therapist works with their families. I am a very hands-on therapist, sometimes maybe too much, but this is a big undertaking to get an AAC system, to navigate an AAC system, and I'm going to go the extra mile to do that. That's why we have the capacity to bill for certain things when it comes to AAC that are different than the language therapy that we're doing. So 
I feel that you have to know your CPT codes. Mm -hmm. Sorry. This is why why it's important to know what you can build because you won't feel as burnt out or frustrated with the extra work when you know that you can bill for a lot of it. But also, regardless, I would still do it and kind of like really quickly be like, I know this is a big undertaking. I'm here on your team. I'm going to be able to talk you through everything. We have a lot of resources. This won't be just on you because for a lot of these families, if their child is getting to a point that they are going to benefit from a speech generating device, they've had a lot of other doctor's appointments, visits, therapists. And so it's been a journey for them to even get there to that point. So to be like, I'm not trying to add this huge thing to your plate. I'm just trying to provide another resource for your child to be able to communicate. I'm here. I'm on your team. I'll talk you through everything and we'll get through it together so that it's not like, okay, wow, you're asking me to do this whole other thing. This is okay. We can take it step by step. We can do this together at whatever pace you need to do that. The CPT codes and knowing your worth. A lot of us get paid per visit. And a lot of us, especially in the home health world, you have a set contract rate, right? Well, that whole pay per visit, you need to know the, I'm not trying to like line your pockets here, but like you do need to know the money that you're bringing in for the company that you're working for. In South Carolina, the 92609 code utilization of a speech generating device generates an additional, I want to say $50 per utilization. So because it is more work to do that. There is a V code on the ASHA super bill for the initial programming of a device. And I think that counts like up to an hour or two hours of time for the initial programming. You need to advocate to have access to those codes because your time and your advanced skill set utilizing an AAC device, that's those are advanced skills. That's not something you typically come right out of grad school knowing. And Riley's kind of an exception to a rule because of that rule, because of her life experiences and her clinical practicum exposures. And she jumped right into it. But like these are when you're filling out your productivity chart, when you're submitting your claims, you need to know which CPT codes to utilize. 92507 for language, 92609 for speech generating, and so forth. But Riley, I know I preached that a lot in class. You did. You really did. <laughs> yes, but it's important. <laughs> it is. And Aaron and I have had this conversation a lot, and the same with you. Taking the next step and advocating for that, for the, the billing of it. Well, and also it's just important because like Michelle said, it is a different skill. And so it also allows for a child to receive the services that they need because I have had a lot of physicians come to me meeting with families that use eye gaze or use other devices and they just hear from the families like I just, we don't know how to use it. They're not accessing it. We're struggling with it and their speech therapist might not be comfortable with it. So the fact that I can bill for AAC allows me to support these families in a way that maybe their weekly speech therapist doesn't know how or they can't find someone that knows how. So I can provide that very specific skill 
and bill appropriately for it and ethically for it can be very helpful, I think, especially when it comes to eye gaze and devices that have much different access than direct, because I think that also puts another level of stress for families or therapists, because it's just something that we don't have as much training in and and have to learn a lot more about because access is just as important. It's hard for them to use. They're not going to use it. So So I have a question. We've talked about barriers. We've talked about like some personal experiences, the ethics behind billing. What works? What strategies do you find work best when you're making your pitch for incorporating AAC? What trial and error? Tell me what what has worked. Like what worked for Ty Riley? As in like device or... Mm -hmm. He used the Toby. Oh, no, no. I mean, not like the type of device, but like what made y'all's family buy in or him buy into wanting to utilize it? With just like knowing his diagnosis, I would say his severity of his spastic cerebral palsy and the years of therapy and knowing that he was very connected with people and he loved relationships and seeing him use a device of from my memory of like him lighting up of like, I can converse with you if I don't know you. I mean, he would definitely try, but with the other person, <laughs> he would try in a way of maybe stealing their beer because he thought that was funny. So when he could talk to them about who we were as a family or his favorite thing, food, what he was going to eat in two minutes, that was something that he was passionate about just as like, When we talk to a stranger, they probably ask what we do and we go on a tangent of what we love to do or what makes us happy. Yeah. My parents, they definitely, as any parent does, they want the best for their child. And they did a lot of new things with him. Like Ty was the first in North Dakota to get Botox in his legs and have surgeries to be able to walk. So like they were seeking to find the best for him. And I know that that's why they did that with the device. Well, and that's a really good point because we focus so much on requesting right away because it's very concrete. They ask for something and they get it. And so I think that's a very, a thing that a lot of therapists go to right away. But oftentimes the thing that the child cares the most about is being able to connect and say mama and say I like this and talk about their day or no and so but I think people think that's like advanced when you start with a device when in reality these are all things that the child is thinking they just haven't been able to communicate it so and also how much of our day do we spend requesting most of our day we spend connecting so but you have to but also you have, oh, go ahead. No, I was just thinking like, that is so true. Like you hate asking for help. It's like ripping your teeth out. But that's also why I love when people get really excited about AAC. It's great. I love it. I'm a huge proponent of it, but you also have to connect with that kid first or they're not going to care. It's the same way I was telling a mom today who is fantastic and her child now uses his speech sharing device he speaks, but he also uses his device. He's a great example of like molding those together. And they have done a fantastic job of 
collaborating. And they also, just because a kid says it doesn't mean it also doesn't belong on their device. So they put all his scripts on there. Some of them are like Harry Unbalder from Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Or now he's he's like adding words like you're a super stinky egg and like these weird things he hears on TV, which he thinks are so funny. But he does them because he thinks they're funny. Like these scripts mean so much more. Yeah. But like, yeah, just because a kid isn't speaking doesn't mean they don't deserve to tell a joke and laugh with you. You have to connect with them. But I was listening to, or I don't know if I was reading something, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about just all language learners and how when they imitate you immediately, because we all get to that point, you know, most of our kids will script under their breath or they'll try out scripts or they'll see how they respond. And then there's a moment I have a lot of kids were in a session, they'll imitate me right away. And I'm like, that's new. And they say it's because they're accepting our language, essentially. I don't know if they specified this in the article or that when they were talking, but I have found it's person specific. So they're accepting your language as a person because they trust you. And so if you don't get a child to trust you and connect with you, they're not going to accept you using the device and modeling it because they'll just be like, that's that crazy person that carries around that thing that talks. Like that's what they're, (laughs) what they might be thinking. And so you're not going to get anywhere with a kid if you don't connect with them first. And AAC can be so regulated and it can be so empowering, but you can't throw it in their face and you can't throw it in a parent's face without connecting with them either. Like you may have all these great ideas, but someone has to like you to some extent for them to trust what you're saying. Like that's just psych for you. You can get people to do more if you get them to like you and don't be manipulative about it or inauthentic, but like reeling them in and bonding with them is important. Okay. So how Townsend is the head of the kitchens at Francis Marion University. And every single day he sends out today's reflective moment. And I don't never met this man. I love him. I specifically requested to continue to get his emails because they're just joyful little quotes of of light. And today his quote was, and it was actually from Queen Elizabeth because she just passed, but It said, it's always been easy to hate and destroy. To build and to cherish is much more difficult. But that's what you're doing is you're building a relationship. You're building that, sorry, connected hell. One day I want to meet you and tell you thank you for your word of light every morning. But you're building a cherishing moment. And it's not easy, especially when you're in home and you have the build it with the whole family and not just a kid that's coming into the clinic. So how did you navigate that as a CF? I mean, you're in your CF. We like people can pick and nick you, you can pick all the hard ones, but like home health as a CF is hard. So how do you go about doing that? I do brief a lot <laughs> with Aaron and you and just like sometimes I just don't feel like I don't know what I'm doing, but I just from y'all's knowledge, I know the foundation of making sure the connection's there. And I feel like with some of my families, it is hard as they have EIs telling them information. They have OTs telling them information. They have CODAs. They have PTs. They have all these people. And I have this one family that I vividly remember. She was telling me that. So her kid possibly just on the edge, like he's young, but they want to diagnose him with autism. And she was telling me that all of his therapists have goals for eye contact. 
And she asked me if I had that goal. And I explained to her of how I instead value circles of communication as what I've learned from Erin being her student and now taking the floor time course first class yesterday. And it was great. She was saying how, as she was doing her research of how it was like a kid is looking into a bright light when they have to look into someone's eyes as an autistic kid and how for her, it was hard to know that that was the goals for her child if it's hurting him. And so going into that family, I find it challenging because as a CF, like I don't know a lot of information. I learn know better, do better. But in navigating that grief situation of your child is starting all these therapies, he just got diagnosed. You have some therapist telling you this, you have some therapist telling you that, and you have an eval this week, you have a hearing appointment next week. But I had one great session with her of just asking how she was doing, how she was processing, like what she needed from me, like what resources she wanted me to bring. And just knowing that, and I take this from y'all all the time is saying, I'm on your team. Like I am a part of the team. It is not me telling you what to do. It is us all working together. And my hope is just knowing that she can trust me. And that's what I want with all my parents, that they can trust me. And that's the biggest thing that I I strive for, because if they can trust me, then they can trust me with their child. If you establish trust and if you establish those, a healthy, strong connection, as Aaron would say, then when you bring in a communication device, which can be scary and foreign to, you have the ability, you have built your house on stone to move it forward. Right. Okay. So if there's a sibling listening, what would you tell them? As being a sibling, just reminding yourself that you are also being heard in the family. Because that was something that I struggled with growing up is knowing that this is just also who I am as I'm going to make sure that my brother's okay. And knowing that I also have to value myself and that I'm being heard even though if I don't always put myself first and that's just kind of how it is sometimes in those households is it's just what it is. And knowing that even though if your sibling can't communicate to you in a way that your love language is met, that they value all that you're doing for them. And so do your parents, even though if it's not verbally told to you or if you don't see it until you're like, I am 23 years old now of knowing that my parents honored and valued everything that I did back home with Ty. When I was 15, I was mad. I was like, why why do I have to do this? Why do I have to babysit my brother when everyone else is out having fun? But it was because they trusted me and knew that I would keep him safe. I, I get to hear the funny stories of Christian and his brother growing up. And if you don't, if y'all don't know, Christian has an older brother who's 45, Uncle Matthew Munster, and he has autism and CP and cortical vision impairment and all the things. And he has said, you know, funny stories and all, but it was hard. And he felt his needs were placed secondary too. It's at moments like that where I feel Knowing those conversations and knowing that, you know, we've talked about that as a family, 
going into homes with the devices, I feel like that's an opportunity to bond with the siblings too and help them build their own identity and not just necessarily as a caretaker, letting them be seen and heard too. Let them pick fringe for them too. Let them pick phrases for them too so they can interact and cut up and play with their sibling. I guess I like until this conversation didn't realize like things that I do that just make sense. Like the family that Riley now sees that I used to see, they have what, five, four, five other siblings. And I always made it a point when I walked into the house and when I left the house to say hello to each of them and goodbye to each of them individually because they may not be the child that I'm seeing, but they are a part of the family and they are just as valued. And I mean, granted, this family, some of the other children do get therapy as well, but in other families, like there's children that, you know, their siblings, sees all the people. And especially when they're young, they don't know, like he gets to have all these people come in and play with him. And I have to sit there and watch and I don't get to play because it's their therapy and parents meanwhile, but like, I'm much more okay. And I don't, this is their life though. Like siblings are coming in when they're doing things all the time. So like, they're going to have to have language around it. They're going to have to have communication around it. Like this is totally fine. It does not bother me at all. And I make, but I make sure to tell parents that and explain that to them because I think especially we all work in the South and there's a lot of like, I don't want to upset anyone. And I want to make sure that I'm, you know, being polite and you rushing into that is not polite. And that's just how people live in the house that they grew up in. And so making sure that you have that, it's okay to be very direct and say to the parent, if I really don't mind if their sibling comes in for this whole session, it it is good for them. It is good for the sibling. I can navigate through both. Do not feel like you have to pull them away. It does not bother me. And you might have to say that seven times for them to actually not feel guilty about it because sometimes it takes hearing something seven times and people don't always say what they mean. So when they learn that you say what you mean, but like, just as I say hello and goodbye to my patients in the same way, when I walk in, like I try and do that. And I ask siblings, how are you doing? How was your day at school? Did you have a good day? Because they deserve to talk about their day too. And I think that's a valid part of your session as well. But like that just comes automatically to me. But I think that like it's a, and not to be like, oh, I'm just, but like it's important to think about that and, and try to add that in too, if that's something that you're not already doing. But that gets back to the building of relationships because what you're modeling through those actions is you're modeling conversations and turn-taking and seeking to understand uh, from another individual. And that's all getting absorbed by the tiny eyes and ears in the room around you that is going to turn around and then choose their modality of communication or all of them to imitate what they've seen, what they've witnessed. Healthy communication. A lot of people don't know what is. Fun fact, they don't. Hi. Oh. (laughs) 
Sorry, that's that was a conversation we had in the park because the boys were like, "Mom, my friend always yells when he's not heard." And I was like, "Well, maybe they just yell at their house to be heard." And he's like, "Why would they yell?" And I was like, "I don't know. Same reason you and your brother yell at each other to be heard. Like it's just it, different folks, different strokes." Yes. Okay, Riley. Any last thoughts or any organizations you want to acknowledge or say has been like supportive or for y'all as a family or anything? The one as a family that I know has had a big impact and we've given back since Ty's passing is Shriners Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota. He went there his whole life. And that's another memory that I have. I used to always go with him to his appointments because it's so cool there. They had fish on their wall. Like... (laughs) Like, it was awesome. It's so cool. That's really the only one I can remember. But, I mean, from being in school and working with y'all, Control Bionics has really sparked a passion in me of navigating other ways of AAC and why it would talk to me technologies. He's amazing. I've been in contact with him recently with some of my patients. But those are really the only two that I know. But I know there's a lot of other amazing ones around here. South Carolina Assistive Tech, they're amazing. Get that to you right away, they, which is incredible. I wish there was more resources like that. Yeah. We know it's not that easy in every state. I know that Michelle and I have a friend in New Jersey and she will tell us like it is really, really, yeah, we miss you a lot. It's hard to get devices covered in other states, unfortunately. Shockingly, South Carolina is doing a great job with it. So um, yeah. good job. Good job, South Carolina. Like, I don't know how the hell that happened, but yay, <laughs> we did something good. Okay, so folks, if you have love money lying around at the end of the month, and I know the festival seasons are upon us, so you might not, but if you do, consider donating to Shriners because they do put good in the world. So there's your... And Lane Riles with Control Biotics, we love you. Okay, so Riley... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being brave and sharing y'all's story because I know that that is intimate conversation. So thank you. And thank you to your mom and your dad and Jackson and to Ty. And folks, if you're listening, you know, we love it when you hit us up with questions or comments. So tune in to First Bite Podcast on the land of Instagram, our Facebook page, Catch Riley at closing the gap in Minneapolis, Minnesota next month in October. I will be at OSpeak, the Ohio School-Based Speech-Language Pathology Conference, the middle of October. Erin's got a live presentation coming up. Don't you have a live one coming? The 30th? Yep. Online as a webinar that she hasn't written. Don't listen to that, folks. And then we will for sure be at ASHA this year at the speechtherapypd.com booth. So also, I will be at PISHA in April. It's a while away. But make your plans now. Speaking. Yes. In Pennsylvania. I got it. I have to save pennies because I want to sit there and watch you and be like, go, Aaron. I'll make a poster board in the back. Wow. Okay. It's my first right, invited everyone. lecture. This is a huge deal. Hence the poster board. Riley and I are going to stow away in your luggage. <laughs> you yeah. take a little road trip, Michelle. We could do that. I think Christian would be like the three of y'all in Pittsburgh by yourself. No. <laughs> wait, 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 like I Philly. said, I want to see Aaron's stomping grounds. Yeah. Wait, it's in Philly? It's in, it's in Valley Forge, which is outside of Philly. But 
We also have to go to Pittsburgh. Yes. Okay. So all the things. Well, then we'll we'll make it work. Okay. So check us out somewhere, guys. Check us out somewhere. All right. Y'all hold on. <laughs> Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.
Bye.